Welcome back again to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. Today, what we are going to try to do is review the second part of the risk assessment and risk management lecture series. We introduced several of the concepts we're going to talk about here today in the first part of this lecture. And then what we'll try to do as we finish up when we go through all of this, we'll try to review the uh, body of uh, the work present presented in these lectures in terms of risk assessment and risk management. Before we get started on that, uh, I think it is probably best if we uh, do a, a little exercise, a quiz, if you will. Uh, this is not a quiz for a grade. This is a quiz, uh, almost a self-assessment for the students uh, in the class. And so what I'm going to have you do here for a few minutes is answer a series of questions. So if you don't have a pen or paper, please take one out. Uh, what I'm going to do is ask you these uh, four or five questions, uh, and I'm going to ask you for, uh, to, to write down uh, your best result, your best guess, if you will, uh, on what the answer to these questions are. And try to be honest with yourself. Uh, if you're accessing the Internet, please don't look it up. Uh, I, I think that uh, defeats the purpose of the quiz if you sit there and try and get an answer. Again, this is not a great exercise. I want you to kind of pull from your own kind of knowledge base, your approach to problem solving, the best answer that you can for these five questions. Uh, the first question I'm going to ask you uh, is the, uh, uh, and these have simple uh, answers, and so I want you to give um, a, uh, a range, because I, some of them are going to have uh, numerical answers. Uh, so I give, give a range of what would be for instance, uh, the uh, largest estimate that you would give and perhaps the lowest estimate. So each answer that you're going to give is actually the range of potential uh, answers uh, to this particular question. Uh, the first question is uh, the height of the world's largest, world's tallest uh, building. Uh, what do you think the uh, upper bound and the lower bound of uh, height? And why don't we go ahead and put this in meters? Um, this is the world's tallest build building, and this is actually uh, via the uh, Guinness Book of World Records uh, as a reference. So uh, your your best guess of uh, the high limit and the low limit of uh, such that your the correct answer is between those two numbers. Okay, the height of the world's tallest building in meters. Okay, now that you've got that one, we're ready for the next uh, question. And I want you to write down the upper limit and the lower limit of your guesses for the atomic weight of gold. So give us the atomic weight of gold. Uh, at least three significant figures and uh, perhaps more if you know this off the top of your head. Uh, your high-end estimate and your low-end estimate, the atomic weight of gold. Now, according to NASA, and our third question is, according to NASA, the sun has uh, a, a very hot temperature. Uh, it's a tremendous energy source. Uh, thermonuclear reactions sustain it. What is the best estimate of the temperature of the core of the sun, according to NASA scientists? Again, the high-end estimate and the low-end estimate. Maybe a tough one, but use your imagination. Now, the next question, I'm going to have you give me the area 
of the world's smallest country. And that area is in square kilometers. How many square kilometers is the area of the world's smallest country? You're going to give the high-end estimate, you're going to give a range, a high-end estimate and a low-end estimate of the range of the area of the world's smallest country in square kilometers. The next question. This question requires a little bit of background. In the mid-1940s, in a town called Frita, Colorado, uh, a young farmer feeding a Sunday dinner to his wife and his in-laws that were coming off over uh, for, for Sunday supper, decided to uh, butcher a chicken. Uh, so he went out to the yard and did the deed with the hatchet. And, uh, and as is sometimes happens uh, because of the amount of brainstem activity that uh, uh, birds have, uh, his strike was not the greatest, and in fact, this chicken, you've heard the expression running around like a chicken without its head, uh, ran around. But unlike what may happen in this particular case, uh, this particular chicken did not fall over dead after a certain period of time. In fact, this chicken without a head uh, became a local and even a national celebrity in the mid-1940s. Uh, and in fact, the name of this chicken was Mike the Headless Chicken. Now, Mike the Headless Chicken uh, stayed around for a while. Uh, in fact, the farmer took mercy on this, said this is God's will, that uh, he was going to uh, uh, not sacrifice uh, this chicken any further, and in fact, nurtured the chicken over uh, the next uh, period of time. Uh, it's such that this animal actually gained weight uh, and uh, again became a little bit of a national celebrity in term of, terms of uh, carnival shows to Mike the Headless Chicken. The question I have for you is after uh, Mike the Headless Chicken's uh, date with destiny, how long did this chicken end up surviving in number of months? And this is a high-end estimate and a low-end estimate of the number of months that Mike the Headless Chicken survived without a head. And uh, so to review, the height of the world's tallest building in meters, the atomic weight of gold, the temperature of the core of the sun in degrees Kelvin, the area of the world's smallest country in square kilometers, and then how many months did Mike the Headless Chicken live after his date with destiny? Okay, so you have all those answers written down, good. Let's go through the answers. The world's largest, tallest building is the Taipei 101, uh, also known as the Taipei Financial Center. It is the world's tallest building at 508 meters. Uh, it actually became uh, that, uh, the world's tallest building, uh, in, uh, in October 2003. Before that time, it was the Petronas Towers in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, if your range of your high estimate and your low estimate uh, has 508 meters uh, within that range, uh, consider your answer correct. If it does not, it is incorrect. Now, the atomic weight of gold, hopefully you haven't looked this up, then you just guessed. You guessed with a range. The atomic weight of gold is, in fact, 196.9665. For those of you that had this number within your range, 
go ahead and mark yourself correct. Those that did not, mark it incorrect. The next question, the temperature of the sun according to NASA scientists in degrees Kelvin, 16 million degrees Kelvin. If your range contains the number 16 million degrees, go ahead and mark yourself correct, but if it does not, mark yourself incorrect. The area of the world's smallest country is in fact the Vatican, Vatican City, at 0.44 square kilometers. And so if in fact your range of numbers, your high estimate, your low estimate, contains 0.44 square kilometers, go ahead and mark yourself correct. How long did Mike the Headless Chicken live? Well, if you Google Mike the Headless Chicken, you can find this out for yourself, but I'll go ahead and spare you the, the uh, excitement here. Uh, Mike the Headless Chicken did in fact live for a full 18 months after he lost his noggin. And uh, if you do go to the website, you can see pictures of and the background story of Mike the Headless Chicken. Now, what's the point of this quiz? Well, in fact, this was an uncertainty quiz. And if the students in this class are like most of the students that I teach uh, and give this quiz to, you'll find that typically your range of results will probably, you'll have maybe two, maybe three correct answers. Typically, no one gets all of the answers correct. Think about this and think about yourself and how you answered this question relative to an uncertainty range. You could have had all of these answers correct if you would have done extremely large ranges in all cases. Okay, said, listen, I don't know the answer of the temperature of the sun. So let's say it's between zero and a hundred million billion. Yet answer, although a very, very wide range in terms of the scope of the problem would in fact have been a correct answer. Okay, Mike the Headless Chicken, we don't have, we don't have much information in terms of base set, so it's a yes. So, but most of us will try to use our own expertise, our own sort of cognitive biases to, to estimate with some degree of uncertainty what that range would be. As it turns out quite often, more often than not, our guesses are wrong. Our guesses are wrong when we lack knowledge. The point of this quiz is a demonstration of uncertainty and our own cognitive biases and how we think we are much smarter than we may well be. Without that expert knowledge, without having Google there to answer all of our questions for us, we sometimes don't have a good good weighting of the uncertainty of our own perceptions of the world around us. This is supposed to be a learning exercise that it is a good idea to be able to in risk assessment when we are certain sense guessing on our best case of inputs, we're guessing on outcomes, that it is a good idea to try to quantify the uncertainty. Okay. This lecture, and in a certain sense, risk assessment or risk management is all about modeling and quantifying uncertainty. What we're going to try to do today is also follow through with the learning objectives of last time in modeling risk and modeling uncertainty. It was George Box that said, all models are wrong. However, some models are useful. Now think about that. 
how many of the things that we have in life are, dem are actually demonstrations of algorithms, equations, models, predictions. Think about how many of our things in our daily life have to do with models. Models are our attempt at synthesizing a relationship with nature, a numerical relationship and a predictive relationship with nature. Nature is sometimes complex and sometimes has inputs that, uh, to be quite honest, uh, we're not very good at modeling. And so modelers know and recognize this. They try to improve their models uh, with each next generation to better adequately identify and describe a natural situation. Risk assessment, and to a degree, toxicology. When we look at dose response, we're looking at a numerical relationship, a predictive relationship between an exposure and a toxic endpoint. It is a model. It is a model of a toxicological outcome. So the idea here is that we have to have a respect that all of our models can be wrong, but some of them can be quite useful in modeling behaviors and doing the best job that we can. Now, there will be people that look at scientists and say, ha-ha, you're wrong. Your model is wrong. Can you say with with absolute certainty that your prediction is going to be correct? The correct scientific answer is no. And therefore, those who aren't scientists will sometimes use that as saying, ha-ha, you don't know what you're talking about. And therefore, any predictive aspects of your model are therefore wrong. This is political science quite often in terms of how science is used against science in terms of trying to communicate the strengths and also the weaknesses of risk assessment in the public arena. This is the best we can do. Does it mean that it is inherently weak? No. Quite often our models are extremely, extraordinarily robust in terms of predicting outcomes. Sometimes, however, they are wrong. Why do we model risk? We do this so we can better understand a system. Sometimes what we have to do is reduce down a com very complex natural system to those things that we can try to control, we can try to understand in terms of fundamental relationships. In a, in a lecture later uh, in this particular semester in Principles of Environmental Toxicology, we'll talk about modeling ecosystem compartments, uh, compartments in the transfer, for example, of environmental chemicals from water to air. Okay? We can actually model that and come up with a prediction. These predictions help us understand the eventuality and perhaps even cause effects in the future of what we do today and how it's going to impact us tomorrow. Some risk modeling is necessary because acceptable risk levels are not measurable. We've talked about this in terms of human risk assessment where we're not going to be doing experiments, dose-response experiments on our kids. And so we, in that particular case, we use comparative toxicology. Comparative toxicology uses an animal model. What we have done to increase our surety that animal models in toxicology are correct is we apply safety factors, typically conservative safety factors of a factor of 100, in some cases a factor of 1,000 or 10,000.
There are other aspects where, for instance, direct sampling is not feasible. For example, how does one determine the temperature of the core of the sun? Well, direct sampling is not feasible, so we will come up with some fundamental models of relationships of other natural phenomena that might be able to give us an insight into what the temperature of the sun actually is. If you remember in our uh, previous lecture, I showed uh, this slide, and this is some, uh, the development of a risk model. Uh, there's a toxicity factor, a contaminant concentration, a contact rate, uh, an exposure factor, uh, an exposure dose uh, divided by body weight. Uh, this uh, risk equation can vary depending upon what you're trying to model. But the idea here is that whatever model equation we come up with, there will be inputs. And we have some choices in how we determine those inputs. Again, in a point deterministic input, each one of the inputs uh, into this model will be a singular point. There will be a number. This might be an average of average body weight for a population, for example. We identified that, in fact, normally distributed uh, population body weights have a, a, a curve, a bell-shaped curve like this. But in fact, in point deterministic, we'll just take the average, or in some cases, the mean. And we'll do this typically for all of the inputs, even though these inputs may have a distribution. Contaminant concentration, typically in a point deterministic approach, worst case scenario, we're going to take something that is on the high end of the concentrations that are observed. But what can you see here if, in fact, each one of these inputs we're going to take the worst case scenario uh, input, the highest concentration, the greatest level of exposure, the greatest contact rate, what happens to our risk analysis equation? It develops into a worst case scenario. This is not that. This is extraordinarily useful, in fact, especially when we model a worst case scenario. And this is a very simple uh, approach. Simple, perhaps, is an overstatement, but it is a simpler approach because a group of people can come up with a worst-case scenario and debate it back and forth uh, fairly, fairly uh, easily. Once we have this, if we actually run that worst-case scenario model, we can come up with some sort of risk assessment. That risk assessment is a worst-case scenario risk assessment, and we as mature uh, scientists need to know that is a model of a worst-case scenario. Is it a model of every day? Is it a model of typical? No, it is not. And so we then have to decide what that means in the context of the amount of energy, resources, and relative risk. If the outcome that we are talking about is developmental, reproductive, uh, or lethal, sometimes uh, worst-case scenarios are highly merited because the loss of one life is sometimes considered too much in actuality. And so we take a look at this. If the worst case scenario is someone gets uh, a contact dermatitis, a rash on their arm that will clear up if they get away from their job, the risk assessment from a worst case scenario is different in terms of its relative uh, seriousness. 
Well, what do we do in terms of uh, identifying uh, and quantifying some of the uncertainty? For example, in that body weight distribution, there is some uncertainty in using point dis deterministic approaches because, in fact, there is a range of body weights. And what we might find is that individuals that are lighter might get a significantly higher level per capita dose on a body weight basis. What we do is we start introducing stochastic uh, methodologies. One of these is a Monte Carlo simulation. It's a technique by which a prediction is calculated repeatedly using randomly selected what-if trials. And so there's a certain amount of plots of randomness, uh, a throw of the dice, if you will, a repeated throw of the dice. The results of the numerous trials are plotted to represent a frequency distribution of possible outcomes allowing the likelihood of each one of these outcomes to be then estimated. Some of the history of this is they come to us from games of chance, uh, and they were actually used in the 19th and 20, early 20th centuries to infer outcomes. Uh, we actually developed the earliest uh, uh, numerical estimate of pi uh, by looking at a pin and how often it was uh, tossed and intersected lines on a grid. The Monte Carlo term came into use during the uh, modeling analysis of uh, nuclear weapons development in the Los Alamos National Laboratory in the late 1940s. Uh, the idea was to try to predict outcomes. By the way, one of the predictions said there was a finite possibility that if you exploded a nuclear bomb, there would be a cataclysmic chain reaction that would end all life and all processes on the planet Earth. There was some degree of uncertainty about the outcome. We were going to where we had not gone before in terms of developing nuclear weapons. In the models using Monte Carlo simulation, there was a possibility. And you could put a number on that possibility, and it would be very small, but there was a possibility that there would be this highly negative outcome. In terms of available tools to risk assessors, people like you and me that are involved in toxicology uh, these days with computers, it used to be that uh, we'd have to hand calculate all these simulations. Now we can use uh, Excel spreadsheets uh, or various uh, add-in programs. A couple of the names of these programs, Crystal Ball uh, is a program that sits on top of uh, Excel. At Risk is another one. Uh, these types of programs which allow you to do stochastic calculations in the same way you would do to point deterministic calculations, think of it actually, if you were to take instead of numbers in that equation that we were, uh, put up here before, instead of numbers, you actually were able to take a selection of all of the range of the numbers in that distribution. So in essence, you're multiplying a distribution by a distribution by a distribution by a distribution. Now think of that. You're not just talking about multiplying one number by another number. You're multiplying the numbers in a collection in a distribution by another collection of numbers in a distribution. How many calculations? A whole lot. And so typically what you do is you truncate this at maybe a thousand calculations to get a representative outcome, a good model of the distribution of results. And so these are computer-intense calculations, but they actually can be done on a home computer with these particular pieces of software. 
Now, risk assessors are, in toxicology are not the only kind of risk assessors. There are all sorts of risk assessment. And there's all sorts of people that want to predict the future. Uh, think about people that do investments and investment strategies. You've got a certain amount of input in terms of past performance and, and perhaps uh, what you might think will happen in the future. You can set up an equation, you can set up the best available inputs, and you can actually try to quantify your uncertainty and get a result on how best to invest your money. And so these sorts of tools are actually used quite a lot in terms of uh, investment, financial predictions, and economic uh, outcomes. This is broadly referred to as a stochastic approach, okay? And this is where we are going to actually uh, use a, the relationships of all of the numbers in all of these distributions multiplied in here. So all of the numbers that make up this distribution are multiplied by all of the numbers that are make up this distribution plus this distribution times this distribution times this distribution. And so you can see that this is a very numerically intense calculation. That's why you need a computer. But what happens if you do this with this sophisticated software? Instead of getting an outcome, for instance, a hazard quotient where you have one number, you're actually going to get a distribution of your risk. And so then you have to make a determination on what number is the most appropriate uh, number to be using in your risk assessment. And this is where we go back to the emphasis that we had in the previous lecture that typically the outcome is going to be uh, regarded as what's protective for 95% of individuals. So if we examine the relationship between stochastic and deterministic risk assessment, they're both, uh, they have some similarities. They both operate in the same fundamental model structure. So the numerical equation that we're using in a deterministic analysis and in a stochastic analysis are the same. It's just the inputs as we run that calculation. So we generally use the same data. Although in point deterministic, we will just use a point, and usually that point is an average or a mean or a median, whatever is, is the best. Or in some cases, we might selectively or electively use a worst case scenario input. So rather than the average concentration of uh, a contaminant in water that might be appropriate, we might do a worst case scenario and ask ourselves, well, in our study, in our monitoring, what is the highest concentration we ever observed? And if that highest concentration uh, is put in here, we start developing, again, a worst case scenario. The differences, stochastic approaches uh, utilize complete distributions, as I've said, whereas deterministic approaches use a single point, uh, and that's typically from each uh, distribution. Now remember that when we go into a modeling exercise, we may have knowledge and we may not have knowledge, meaning that all of the inputs uh, that we have in terms of this risk, some of them might be guesses. Even some of the distributions might be guesses. We may not have a complete and full knowledge of the system. And so we have to use best guesses. And sometimes those best guesses have to do with how experts like yourself view natural reality, worst case scenarios, professional experience, and just guts. This is the same sort of expert opinion that perhaps physicians use when they are doing a patient clinical diagnosis. 
Not everything comes out of a textbook or a formula. Sometimes it's just an expert opinion, an expert sort of guts. And these have to be defendable in the same way that physicians often have second opinions to give themselves some surety in terms of a diagnostic outcome. Same sort of thing happens in terms of risk assessment. Toxicologists, uh, regulators will get together and they will say, this is a, an acceptable, in my frame of reference, with my cognitive biases, uh, this is an acceptable input in terms of this model because we just don't know and we can't afford uh, the uh, data to do this particular risk model. One of the differences that we do find with stochastic approaches is that we actually quantify uncertainty, whereas deterministic approaches do not. And so, for example, I'll go back to our dioxin lecture where in the summer of uh, 2006, the National Academy of Sciences reviewed the EPA 2003 risk assessment of dioxins in the U.S. and said, by and large, we agree with your outcome. However, you have not done a sufficient job of quantifying and justifying the uncertainties in your models and your projections. Go back to the drawing board and give us more, more quantitative uh, aspects of the uncertainty in your overall risk assessment. And so there it is actually in almost real time for this class of why EPA is now going to have to go back and do a better job at quantifying uncertainty in one of their risk assessments. Some of the differences, again, their uh, stochastic approaches are generally more time and resource intensive than deterministic approaches. Uh, you can imagine that uh, one can set up a, a pretty quick back-of-the-envelope calculation, a spreadsheet calculation for a deterministic approach, come up with a hazard quotient to see if, in fact, it's worth going more forward. Uh, we can also uh, model worst-case scenarios very rapidly. Uh, stochastic approaches uh, are capable of providing more realistic predictions sometimes, and deterministic approach is a little bit more general. Uh, there are also differences in terms of the level of skill that it takes. Stochastic approaches require a little bit of specialized training. It's not much. If you can work a spreadsheet and you have the software, it is pretty straightforward. If I can do it, uh, I always like to tell people anyone can do it. In terms of comparing these two general approaches, uh, if we take a look at some parameters like precision, accuracy, representativeness, uh, comparability, completeness, robustness, you can find that in comparing deterministic and stochastic approaches to risk analysis, um, it gives deterministic gives us no uh, information about the precision of the calculation, where in stochastic results it is quantified. Uh, the accuracy, deterministic approaches are conservatively biased, and there's a relative unbiased because we're including all possible sets of equations. So there's worst case, uh, least worst case, uh, or best case scenarios, best outcome scenarios. In representativeness, there's really no information whether or not the inputs are representative. Again, these are our best guesses. And in fact, in stochastic, because we get a fairly large statistical outcome, we can actually uh, determine them to be representative. In terms of comparability, uh, we can't necessarily compare the inputs of one deterministic uh, calculation to another, whereas the statistics that are the outcome of a stochastic approach are comparable from one situation to another. 
there is a relative incompleteness associated with deterministic modeling, although it does have some value in terms of being fast and quick and easy to communicate. Uh, there is uh, a, a higher degree of completeness with stochastic modeling. Uh, deterministic modeling is considered to be non-robust. Uh, it's extremely useful in terms of its modeling, but it does not carry the weight and robustness of stochastic modeling. Let's do a few case studies here just to kind of see how the results of the risk assessment would look if you did uh, kind of a worst case scenario point deterministic estimate and then did a stochastic estimate. We won't go into this, but again, this is using crystal ball uh, laid on a spreadsheet and we're doing calculations that involve using all of the uh, distributions as inputs. The four case histories we'll do is an arsenic-contaminated mine site in British Columbia, a uh, lead-contaminated smelter site in Utah, uh, a radium-226, uh, is a radionuclide-contaminated smelter site in Idaho, and a catacarb release at a refinery in California. Uh, catacarb is uh, potassium carbonate, uh, ethanolamine, and some other uh, materials that are used uh, actually in petroleum refinery. Refining, uh, this actually was, all of these are real case, uh, uh, real world uh, risk assessments. For this arsenic contaminated mine site, the outcome that we're worried about with arsenic is uh, cancer. And so this graphic here is the integrated lifetime cancer risk. Uh, and uh, this is for 95% uh, confidence. Uh, what you can see in terms of this green probability, this is probability on this uh, axis, and this is the uh, ILCR, integrated lifetime cancer risk. Uh, here at this axis, it's 6.7 times 10 to the minus ninth. And this is 6.0 times 10 to the minus fifth. And you can see that this is a sharp peak and then drops off, but it goes out here. And so in terms of identifying, when I say 95%, uh, and this is an occupational uh, exposure, uh, that you're going to get 95% of the cases underneath this probability distribution uh, in your risk assessment. Uh, you can see that uh, when you do this in terms of a uh, stochastic approach, this is probability outcome after doing all of the inputs in this risk calculation. Uh, you get about two in a million, uh, the uh, in integrated lifetime cancer risk. This is an increase in your background cancer risk, okay? And that's the mean result. If we compare that down here to the point determinist, deterministic estimate, uh, this is 1 times 10 to the minus 3, so that's 1 in 1,000. Big difference in results, 1 in 1,000 to 2 in a million. Uh, it's greater than the 99.9 .9 percentile. That's way out here uh, in terms of where the point deterministic re uh, uh, comes in, uh, and 2 times 10 to the minus 6 would be about right here. Uh, uh, so we've got uh, uh, actually, uh, if I were to put this on the graph, 2 times 10 to the minus 6 is, is actually right here, um, whereas uh, 1 times 10 to the minus 3 actually is off this graph. It's way out here in terms of where these results would fall. Uh, the difference between the two risk assessments, it's 120-fold, and so there is a significant outcome in how risky this particular situation is. If we were to do a point deterministic risk, worst-case scenario, we might come up with a very unacceptable 1 in 1,000 increased uh, cancer risk, um, whereas uh, we might come up with something that's quite a bit different in terms of stochastic risk assessment. 
One of the things that we can also do when we do these stochastic risk assessments, and this has to do with some of the power of the software packages we use in risk assessment, is actually identify the pathway-specific contribution. Now, having not gone through this yourself, it's going to be kind of hard to imagine and interpret the graphs like this. But this is uh, a contribution graphic. Uh, sometimes this software will actually tell you uh, essentially the weight of the variables of the risk model in determining overall risk. And so this is the relative contribution to risk on the y-axis. And these bars down here are all the inputs in the exposure pathway. And so, for example, fugitive dust inhalation is this first large graph bar here. You can see that that contribution to risk is significant relative to some other ones of, uh, like, for example, hazardous dust ingestion down here, which is relatively small in terms of overall contribution to risk. And so what this does, as you line up in your model, and this is a very complex model, it's looking at, for example, ingestion and inhalation and dermal contact uh, with this arsenic-contaminated dust, you can see how all of these different vectors of exposure contribute to the overall risk, but this helps us as a management tool saying, boy, if we got rid of fugitive dust, and uh, somehow mitigated inhalation, having workers use masks, for example, we would modify our risks significantly with that one action or activity. That's how we use these risk assessments in terms of modifying or mitigating risk, in this case, in occupational exposure. Our next example is a lead-contaminated smelter site. Uh, this is up in uh, Canada. This is blood lead in micrograms per deciliter. At this point in time, the students in this class should have pretty good command of blood lead and some of the risks uh, it, it approaches in terms of uh, uh, relative health risks. Here, the situation, uh, if we were to take uh, in this, the, all of the inputs in this particular case study and come up with a, a stochastic uh, estimate, um, in this case, 17 micrograms per deciliter, which exceeds the 10 microgram per deciliter recommended limits. If we go ahead and do this in a stochastic uh, method, uh, what we see is that the mean is 2 micrograms per deciliter. 2 micrograms per deciliter is below the 10, uh, the 95th percentile. If we take this out uh, from the mean and, and actually bring it out to the 95th percentile, we're still below the 10 micrograms per deciliter. We're at 9 micrograms per deciliter at the 95th. The overestimation here of point deterministic is only 1.9. And so in this particular case, the point deterministic estimate is almost right on. However, um, the, we get a lot more information when we put all of the accumulated monitoring, all the accumulated concentration data to play in our risk curve. Okay. If you go back to things like IEUBK, you see that there's probability outcomes of, of lead blood lead concentrations. The same sorts of things are going on in terms of the outcome, in terms of the probabilities of uh, blood lead levels from exposure to environmental lead. This next uh, example is a radium-contaminated smelter site. This is a radionuclide, radium-226. 
Because it's a radionuclide, we are also going to be looking at uh, integrated lifetime cancer risk from occupational exposure. That's what this graph is. And that risk is from 1.5 times 10 to the minus 8th up to about 3 times 10 to the minus 4. This is probability, and you can kind of see that we've got a nice sharp peak in probability, but then a small outcome uh, all the way in terms of probability of risk out here. Uh, the point deterministic estimate gives us a 2 in 1,000 result, whereas uh, a, uh, the mean of the stochastic uh, modeling in this particular case is about 8 in a million. 8 in a million is greater than the um, 1 in a million desirable, but perhaps not uh, acceptable. Uh, perhaps it is acceptable in terms of a... Um, uh, the number of uh, uh, occupational exposures that might lead to cancer. The point is, is that in this particular case, there is an overestimation of uh, the result uh, in terms of enhanced cancer risk uh, in occupational exposure between point deterministic and stochastic, if you look at the means uh, and of both, and that's about a 50-fold uh, difference. And again, the point deterministic result down here at 2 times 10 to the minus 3 is actually out here at 2.9 times 10 to the minus 4. And so uh, it's beyond uh, the uh, uh, farthest estimate of this particular uh, graphic. The next one that we'll show is the next example is the catacarb release uh, at a refinery. And this is uh, uh, catacarb contains uh, multiple uh, chemicals. This is a hazard quotient uh, uh, analysis. Again, probability, the hazard quotient going from 0 on this axis up till 23. The point deterministic estimate suggests that the uh, release, the hazard quotient from the release is going to be 60. Uh, this particular uh, stochastic uh, calculation suggests that the mean is 3, but then the 95th percentile is up here at about 8. And so um, this is kind of where this 95th percentile risk analysis number would be in this particular example. This is another one of my uh, sign collections uh, we started last time, uh, just so you can kind of see this and how risk is managed in terms of at least access to sites. Uh, if you see down here, City of Niagara Falls, and perhaps by the black and white of this, uh, no trespassing dangerous area. This is another from the collection of Love Canal, uh, hazardous waste site in upstate New York that actually provided uh, a lot of the uh, uh, civic uh, interest in managing our environment and managing hazardous waste in the 1960s and the 1970s. Now, I've talked uh, in stochastic uh, modeling about using distributions. These are probability distributions. There's many different kinds, and sometimes different variables will have different sorts of numerical distributions. If we go down these probability distributions, normal, log, normal, uniform, log, uniform, a beta distribution, a gamma distribution, an exponential distribution. And then we can also develop custom distributions for variables or triangular distributions. And we'll, we can talk about um, all of these, but the idea is, is that all variables will have some level of uh, information associated with them. And we try to put that to play in what we know about their uh, natural phenomena and their natural distributions. So standardized normal distribution uh, right here is a bell-shaped curve. Uh, it's unbounded. 
It's most commonly known distribution due to expensive use in, in classical uh, statistics. Uh, this is something that, uh, for example, uh, many of the variables that we use, uh, such as body weight, uh, will be normally distributed. We'll also see quite often log normal distributions. And this uh, is from the fact that the logarithms of the values are normally distributed. Uh, it's used to represent positively skewed data. Um, it's used to uh, in many, many environmental and biological uh, variables. Uh, log normal distribution is one, again, of the more common distributions that is used in stochastic modeling. Now, what happens when we know that there is a distribution of results, but we don't know much about the information of their relative probability? In these cases, what we would use is a uniform distribution because we know that, for example, the range of, of numbers in this particular case is between 0 and 1, but that the probability that it's anywhere in between is uniform. In other words, there's no variable probability uh, that is perhaps dependent on the size of this variable. And so we have limited information, but what we do have in terms of information is that there are, uh, is there a, a normal and natural or a physiological range of these variables? We just don't know any sort of probability of that distribution. And so this is a way to put the information in. We know that the variable is going to be a number between 0 and 1, but we don't know anything else about that. We would use a uniform distribution. We would use all of the numbers between 0 and 1 in our calculation. Well, let's compare stochastic and uh, deterministic uh, risk assessments. And we find that virtually all non-trivial models, uh, uh, which are simplified representations of reality, are inherently uncertain. Okay, So no matter if you use deterministic modeling or stochastic modeling, remember that we have uncertainty. The difference is that we have the ability to try to quantify the uncertainty with stochastic modeling. We find that deterministic modeling is a relatively simple approach, and it's somewhat uh, free of demanding uh, your time and, and various resources. Uh, it's also extremely uh, s uh, easier, significantly easier, to uh, communicate. Uh, when you put uh, an equation such as this or a model up on the blackboard in front of a public audience, uh, people can kind of work through it. Uh, can, they can see the phenomena, so to speak, that uh, a, somebody with a smaller body weight uh, with the same dose might be getting more uh, in terms of an overall dosage. Uh, that's easier for general public audience to manage. If you start talking about statistics and probability distributions in front of a general public audience, uh, you're going to get a lot of uh, puzzled looks, uh, to say the least. Stochastic modeling is a little bit more realistic, and it quantifies uncertainty. And so at least we get a number of how uncertainty, uh, how much uncertainty we have in a situation. This, for example, is uh, very useful to people who invest with certain levels of risk. Uh, maybe your investment uh, uh, counselor will ask you, are you uh, uh, do you like a lot of risk in your investment, or are you a conservative investor? Um, there's ways to model that in terms of the uncertainty of the outcome. If you want to make sure that you will get 1% increase in your savings, you will be putting that into a passbook savings account at a bank. If you are not risk-averse, uh, you're young and you want to invest uh, in a more whiskey, risky way, 
perhaps you will be doing uh, various types of growth stocks or other equities uh, in the stock market. Uh, another background piece of information that we reviewed is that Monte Carlo simulation uh, is a standard stochastic uh, modeling algorithm. It's used in many of the things that we do. In fact, uh, driving our car. Uh, modern cars have computers with various algorithms. They do calculations. They do anticipation. They try to make uh, the best of the available information. How hard you're pressing the brake pedal in terms of applying the ABS brakes uh, to keep you out of a skid situation. There's a process, a simulation that's going on in a few nanoseconds to determine how much uh, pressure is actually going to be delivered uh, to the brake pads in your car. Monte Carlo simulation software uh, is very uh, available. These software packages are not usually expensive. Uh, uh, commercial prices are perhaps $2,000. Uh, sounds like a lot for software, but this is a, a piece of software that uh, would be used uh, by a firm uh, in developing a tremendous amount of uh, uh, outcome in terms of what they do on a daily basis in their, in their uh, company. Uh, deterministic modeling is, is a very good screening tool, and sometimes it's a good general tool in terms of outcome, especially when you can model uh, promising worst-case scenarios. Uh, most of the valid concerns about Monte Carlo simulations apply equally or more to various deterministic techniques in terms of where we pick the inputs, uh, what we use in terms of developing that model. Uh, and as I said, deterministic risk models are an easier task in risk communication just because they're far more empirical and straightforward. Uh, and, and typically, in highly volatile public situations, it's a good idea to have both tools and to be at good at explaining the difference between both tools because, as we've seen, sometimes the results between deterministic and stochastic risk modeling end up being different. Another sign, human health uh, hazard uh, here with the, uh, the classic red circle cross uh, saying uh, people aren't supposed to be there except for the people that you can see, I guess, on the other side of this fence. Now let's get back to uh, our discussion in terms of uh, risk assessment and risk management uh, to review. Uh, we talked about last time that the risk assessment and risk management processes are integrated but separate processes. Uh, we reviewed that different missions uh, are, are held for the risk manager and the risk assessor. The risk manager needs to be protective. The risk assessor, the input individual or group, uh, needs to be unbiased. Uh, you need to be balanced in, the, in your approach to this. You don't load up this uh, behind. You don't hide behind statistics. Uh, everything is a fairly open process and open to be varied in terms of group input. We need to have some precaution uh, so as we don't confuse these two missions and two processes. Obviously, the risk manager uh, sometimes has a cost element. Uh, again, if you're a property owner, a uh, company owner, uh, you're managing risk on your company and your property, but there's an economic impact to that. And so there is a potential incentive there to perhaps uh, allow for a riskier situation than is perhaps merited by uh, the current analysis. In terms of uh, risk management, it's always a good idea to come up before you start the process with some decision criteria. Uh, some targets, uh, if, for example, a hazard quotient uh, greater than two or greater than one is going to uh, actually um, 
uh, develop uh, some mitigating solutions. In other words, you're going to have to turn a shovel or, or do something. Uh, you should have those criteria developed before you go into the analysis, general agreement, so that you don't slide what you may or may not think is an acceptable level of risk depending upon the risk assessment outcome. The value of information analysis and further site characterization are part of this iteration. Uh, value of information analysis you saw, for instance, in that arsenic-contaminated mine site uh, where, in fact, fugitive dust uh, was a uh, part of this information analysis. Uh, that's going to suggest that in terms of risk management, uh, you're going to do your best to keep dust down in this particular occupational exposure. Sometimes we'll need some further site characterization uh, in terms of increasing or enhancing the quality of the risk analysis. Uh, maybe the outcome uh, was driven by uh, some information that you were guessing. Uh, for example, in that uniform distribution, we really didn't have a probability. We only really had uh, some simple guesses on what that input was. But perhaps if the result of our risk analysis, our risk assessment is suggesting that we're going to have to spend a half a billion dollars in this cleanup, we'll probably invest some more money in site characterization to get better input, better quality information such that if that outcome uh, happens and, and in fact uh, dictates that we're going to have to spend a tremendous amount of uh, uh, resources to clean this up and to mitigate risk, that we are doing that with the best available information. Um, it also helps uh, these, these processes in decision analysis and remedy selection because, again, we can choose where to put our resources uh, and to prioritize our uh, risk mitigation. Uh, for example, uh, in this case, in the case of the arsenic contaminated mine site, uh, risk mitigation, immediate risk mitigation would be dust control in this particular site. Now, EPA does have uh, what is referred to as a criteria decision model that allows for all of the inputs of all of the aspects of risk analysis and risk assessment to be considered in determining what the total outcome, the next step is uh, that is going to happen. Uh, there are threshold criteria, and so there are absolutes that are put, put forth in terms of protection of human health and the environment. Uh, there can be what's referred to as AWARS, or compliance with uh, the legally applicable or relevant and appropriate standards, requirements, regulations, uh, criteria, and limitations. So for example, there will be federal laws, there might be state laws, and there might be regional city laws, ordinances, that will all come to play in terms of what the best outcome in managing this risk. There will also be some balancing criteria. What's the long-term and short-term performance of the risk mitigation strategy? Uh, are we going to develop a strategy that is going to control contamination for 50 years or 100 years? Is there going to be uh, a 100-year flood event in the consideration of the, uh, the uh, risk management strategy? Uh, they'll want to identify if there is going to be a waste in the volume, toxicity, or mobility of uh, some hazardous materials. Uh, and then the other aspect of balancing criteria is the implementability and the cost of it. We wish we had enough resources to apply 99.999% uh, cleanups in every situation, zero risk or near zero risk. The fact of the matter is, is we can never develop zero risk in managing hazardous waste. It is a fact of nature, it is a fact of humanity. And the fact of the matter then is, 
how much can we afford, where do we put our resources, how do we balance uh, this against the benefits and the risks and come up with a workable solution. This is a part of the very public process of risk management and risk assessment. Very difficult uh, part of it as well. There's also modifying criteria, and that can uh, be just by the state acceptance. Uh, obviously, EPA is a federal uh, agency. Uh, we do have a tremendous amount of uh, states' rights. Uh, the state has to be a uh, prime mover in this as well in terms of managing the properties and resources uh, within the state boundaries. And on a local level, there needs to be community acceptance. And community acceptance can be defined in many ways, but typically we find community groups, activist groups, uh, sometimes these are diverse in their opinions in terms of uh, how uh, the outcome should be managed. And sometimes these can get uh, very loud, very vocal, in terms of arguing back and forth and doing the political uh, posturing and uh, the pressuring in terms of acceptance or denial of particular mitigation outcomes. One of the aspects of uh, risk assessment is to actually come up with what uh, you might want to refer to as a valid high-end risk estimate. Now, if we can say that uh, zero risk is an impossibility in terms of the reality of life uh, as we know it, uh, what should be our targeted reality? And so, for example, this uh, is some sort of probability of an outcome uh, uh, and this can be uh, whatever you want in terms of the, the uh, risk analysis outcome. Uh, you might bracket, for example, a reasonable worst case estimate uh, in this area between the 90th percentile and the 98th percentile. Uh, you can do a high-end estimate bracket uh, up here in terms of somewhere between uh, a 90th percentile and 99.9% uh, estimate and then some sort of bounding estimate where we start getting up into zero risk, greater than 99.9% uh, uh, in terms of uh, coverage. Uh, and again, the difficulties and the challenges as you go in this direction on this curve, the solution becomes uh, quite often extraordinarily uh, expensive, sometimes exponentially expensive. And so where can we put our resources to make sure that the majority of the protection, the majority of the risk is mitigated. And that's typically some place down in here in terms of the 95th percentile. Um, and again, this might be bounded by the outcome, the toxicological profile of the agent, uh, uh, location of receptors, use of property, all of the aspects that we talked about in the earlier lecture. So where is this valid high-end risk estimate? Uh, uh, EPA suggests that that's uh, between the 90th and the 99.9th percentiles. Uh, the worst case scenario uh, is, is typically de designed to be in that uh, uh, high-end estimate. Uh, the bounding estimate is considered to be above this 99.9 percentile. And there is a precedent that there are some that uh, the U US EPA uh, IEBK lead model uh, runs into the 90th to the 95th percentile. And so where you actually pick the mark in terms of overall protection of human health and the environment is also an issue. 
these will, for instance, drive levels of cleanup. Is a background contamination of this soil at 200 parts per million sufficient, or does it have to be 10 parts per million? Uh, what's the level of contamination that's acceptable? The level of contamination is going to develop the toxicological profile, for example, of the surrounding communities. Value of information analysis is also very important. Uh, it allows for assessing, communicating a need for further information. You saw that in a couple of these in terms of how these plots are used. Um, having more data is not better if the data do not contribute significantly to a better decision. For, for example, if we get a tremendous amount of very expensive data on something that really isn't driving the risk, uh, and uh, then, for, for example, uh, that cost, that expense, and we are talking about significant costs and expense. Uh, we have several sites in this country, uh, several meaning uh, in a couple of dozen, where the cost of cleanup exceeds a billion dollars. Uh, how many billions do we have of public monies? Uh, and granted, there is uh, some case in terms of identity and the cause and who's made profit over these. But for example, um, I'll use the example of uh, the Hanford uh, uh, site uh, in eastern Washington. Uh, I think they're talking $30 billion, maybe as much as 50 by the time it's done. However, if you look at the cause and effect of how Hanford became contaminated, it was before we really understood uh, the dimensions of environmental impact, uh, the risks and relative risks of some of the radionuclides that were being managed. And that particular site uh, was, in terms of most of its contamination, developed during a period in this country's life uh, when we were at war and uh, uh, looking for uh, developing uh, a nuclear bomb before someone else did it. And so environmental contamination, human health risk assessment, in terms of what might happen decades later, was perhaps uh, not in the forefront of their attention. There are some uncertainty type analyses that you can use uh, with some of these stochastic approaches. These are graphical methods, uh, and this has a lot to do with just the statistical analysis, the inputs. These are kind of also RANs. These are distribution plots, tornado plots, uh, Pareto plots. Uh, distribution plot, for example, allows us to get out uh, statistics. This is incremental lifetime cancer risk. This is probability. Uh, we can get out the statistics. Uh, they'll give us some information in terms of the distribution, the mean standard deviation, um, uh, a coefficient of variation, all of this to give us a, a quantitative estimate of the uncertainty of our information. We can also develop Pareto, uh, I'm sorry, t tornado plots. Uh, this is very similar to the other plot that I put up here for arsenic um, at a mine site. This is another way to look at it. This is the radium-226 case. And this, for example, is background soil. Uh, this is picocuries per gram from this radionuclide, uh, radium-226. And you can see that the integrated lifetime cancer uh, risk increase from background soil is significant. In other words, that this is a background, just what normally and naturally occurs in uh, this particular area, site-specific area. But these are some of the other uh, contributions. You can see that the background is a significant contribution relative to some of the contaminants uh, associated with human activity. And so this gives us, again, a value of information analysis to put things in perspective. 
in a fairly nice graphical form so we can actually move on with risk assessment, how best to moderate, uh, for example, this particular risk vector or this one being as primary contributors to increasing cancer risk over background. A Pareto plot, you've seen this before, and again, this is incremental lifetime cancer risk, and these are all the p potential uh, increases associated with uh, all of the variable steps that are in this particular risk, accumulated risk analysis. This allows us, again, once we identify the pathways, we then know where to put our resources, our energy, our cleanup, uh, what's, what's highest priority. For example, it would be something out here, and this is fugitive dust inhalation, and these uh, household dust or uh, direct contact uh, uh, sort of things would be less in terms of contributing to overall risk. We can also, in value of information analysis, uh, we can use this to quantify and identify the various biases and uncertainties that we have. Um, uh, we can use it uh, to evaluate the types of biases, whether these are high or low biases, and the uncertainties. Uh, for example, is it just natural variability in the data, or is it ignorance? We just don't know because we haven't collected that data, or we cannot collect that data in terms of the input of this particular model. Uh, we can use this to evaluate the feasibility of, again, of reducing biases or some of those uncertainties uh, attributable to ignorance. And how we do this, for example, is increase our knowledge. We increase our knowledge by sampling more, uh, by constructing better models, uh, doing some analysis, sometimes literature review in terms of identifying new knowledge that might be out there, for example, on a toxicity factor associated with the toxin that we're analyzing. Another uh, sign, high-pressure gas uh, stay out. Uh, a little scary uh, when you look across the fence and see uh, what looks like uh, a house. Well, a lot of this uh, analysis that we're talking about in terms of risk assessment uh, has a lot to do with computer-aided decisions. Uh, computer-aided decisions, they're sometimes real-time, uh, and there's interactive software available. Uh, having participated in some risk assessments where, in fact, on the big screen is the model, and uh, experts and even some general public sitting around a table have uh, what-if scenarios uh, that they'd like to explore. We can put that up there in a real-time fashion and see how uh, our particular biases, our inputs, might modify the overall risk assessment. It's very useful in convincing people that there are certain elements that will drive overall risk. Some of these processes help to effectively allocate uh, finite resources uh, among various competing objectives. Uh, it helps us facilitate identification of various goals, objectives, and criteria in terms of managing and mitigating risk. And sometimes uh, these decisions help us uh, force quantitation of uh, value judgments, uh, various subjectivity and uncertainty. Uh, for example, you may have a bias to perceive a particular activity as either extremely risky or extremely non-risky uh, based on your personal biases. What this does is forces us to look at the numbers on the paper or on the screen and, in fact, having modeled what we consider to be our most biased inputs, our worst-case scenarios, if the outcome is, in fact, uh, opposite to what we have believed, uh, it can be uh, very convincing to us in terms of mitigating or modifying our biases. 
Sometimes uh, these computer-aided decisions uh, can either uh, support and enhance just identification, development, evaluation of alternative remedies. Um, if, in fact, uh, we find through uh, value of information analysis that certain pathways, uh, certain directions that we might go as a risk assessment team, a risk management team, might be best in terms of using available uh, information, available resources, the best, the quickest to mitigate uh, hazardous waste, for example, hazardous waste mobility, toxicity, or volume. Uh, this helps us uh, kind of move forward with the decision. Uh, this can help build consensus, uh, especially when you do these processes, these risk assessment processes, uh, with uh, various types of groups and people in the room. Uh, we can kind of come to a general agreement that this is an acceptable way to go. Uh, it's very helpful in moving these complex uh, public, uh, public health uh, environmental quality decisions forward. The other thing that's nice in, is it can provide a defensible record of the decision-making process. Uh, recognize that quite often in the public domain, these uh, are highly litigious uh, environments. And at least for the people that are looking out, uh, the lawyers and uh, the regulatory enforcement folks, uh, this can at least suggest that there was at one point in time an agreement on how to move forward. And it's documented in terms of the results of the risk analysis outcome. Some of the approach associated with this uh, in terms of computer-aided decision, it, you can establish goals uh, in terms of defined me measurable objectives or criteria. You can develop and identify uh, various alternative remedies. You can do a lot of what-if scenarios fairly uh, cheaply and inexpensively uh, using computer models. You can do technical evaluation of objectives and criteria, and this involves, again, assessment of the costs, assessment of the risk, and some of the public acceptance in terms of this group of risk assessors and risk managers. You can weigh the various objectives and the various criteria, uh, generate uh, various uh, composite scores for each alternative in terms of weighting, uh, allowing for public comment on, on costly or less costly uh, options. Uh, and then we can also evaluate uh, some of the uncertainties uh, in the results. Uh, in terms of the drivers, uh, uncertainty is a driver. Uh, one of the reasons the National Academy of Sciences actually went back to EPA on their dioxin risk assessment was because of the extreme cost of dioxin risk management. If you have extreme cost in the mitigation of risk, you want to make sure that you have a good quantitative quantification of the uncertainty associated with that risk assessment. So in terms of a risk management summary, what we've been uh, talking about here for the, the past two lectures, uh, what you need to know is that risk-based decision criteria for most contaminated sites are typically very conservative. Uh, value of information analysis is typically an excellent means of determining and communicating uh, the need uh, for further site uh, characterization of effects, efforts. Uh, Real-time decision techniques uh, offer an effective means to facilitate and, and in some cases optimize remedy selection because everybody's in the room and we're coming to some sort of consensus. And all of our subjective notions uh, can actually be put to play in developing this risk model. Another photo for you, this is actually uh, contaminated water. Uh, contaminated with chromium-6. 
many of the students might have seen the movie Aaron Brockovich uh, that talks about uh, some uh, plating metals and chromium and some other uh, uh, contaminants that impacted some water systems in the Central Valley of California it led to some very large uh, judgments against uh, Pacific Gas and Electric uh, and uh, made some celebrities in terms of the law firms and legal beagles uh, that prosecuted this case. Well, let's go ahead and summarize uh, what we've been talking about. And in summary, risk assessment is an iterative predictive modeling process. Uh, it's a distinct process and it's related to risk management but separate from risk management. In terms of uh, how we went about our risk analysis, there was a problem formulation step. And this should begin with project planning, and it should be conducted continuously throughout a various uh, focused uh, site investigation. There's a screening process to identify constituents, receptors, and exposure pathways of potential concern. Uh, this is, again, to formulate the problem. We can use deterministic risk assessments uh, for screening. Uh, sometimes it can stop there. Uh, if we've done a good job with our deterministic risk assessment and we have good inputs, uh, when we model a worst case scenario and it comes out that it in fact is not a particularly risky situation, uh, we can then use that as uh, motivation to move on to other bigger, more uh, significant challenges. Um, we can document this problem formulation in a conceptual model. We then move on to analysis. In analysis, we do exposure assessment, and it is usually the most intensive, translate uh, expensive aspect of risk modeling. Uh, we do toxicity ex uh, assessment. We look in the literature, peer-reviewed published literature, the toxicity databases to try and find out all we can find about all the COPCs or COPEX or constituents of potential concern. Um, we'll then take a look at uh, adjusting exposure and toxicity for bioavailability. Uh, for example, we talked about uh, lead in the different species like lead metal, lead salts, lead oxides that might occur in a contaminated environment. It's not just lead. Each one of these has different bioavailability. We then move on to risk characterization. Uh, and this uh, is where we can use a deterministic risk assessment uh, to screen. Uh, and then use uh, stochastic modeling uh, if we need to. Uh, we typically want to focus on the 95th percentile, the estimate of the risk distribution, although in some cases uh, higher uh, levels of uh, risk, uh, estimated risk, uh, like 99.9% is appropriate. Uh, we try and put this risk estimate into regulatory and real-world perspective. So we take a look at it in terms of its land uses, uh, the applicable regulations, the community standards, community input in terms of risk characterization. Obviously, a contaminated waste site that is next to a school or a potential residential area is going to have a different approach in terms of managing its risk than uh, perhaps an industrial zone in an industrial area. In terms of risk management, this value of information analysis is a, uh, an excellent means of determining and communicating uh, whether or not we need to have uh, additional site characterization efforts. Uh, for example, if on first go, our first order analysis tells us that one particular vector of exposure, such as lead dust in contaminated areas, uh, is uh, the prime vector of uh, 
uh, increasing uh, blood lead levels in children, then what can we do in terms of enhancing the data, the input uh, that generates uh, that lead death, that lead dust vector uh, and the information associated with it? Uh, Real-time decision analysis techniques can offer an effective means uh, to facilitate and sometimes optimize uh, these remedy selections. When the day is done, we got to come up with a result. We have to manage the risk. Uh, uh, people and their opinions and their biases can be extraordinarily messy. And these risk assessment, risk management processes can be extraordinarily messy uh, because they're typically a fairly public process and uh, there's a tremendous uh, level of potential for bias on individuals uh, and there's also a need for education uh, and, uh, and typically compromise in these outcome strategies. And finally, uh, in stochastic versus deterministic risk modeling, we find that uh, stochastic risk modeling can be a very cost-effective approach to risk assessment, uh, although it's uh, typically um, problematic in terms of public communication. Monte Carlo simulations uh, are versatile and easily understood for stochastic modeling, understood in terms of statisticians and statistics and risk analysis. Stochastic modeling is capable of yielding results of higher quality than those yielded by deterministic modeling, but there is a cost-benefit in terms of time, uh, the level of uh, the sophistication of the analysis and the people working the analysis is enhanced and increased. It's a little bit more difficult. Uh, it's not overly difficult, uh, but it is a little bit more complex. Um, but one of the things that we need to know is or recognize is that most of the concerns about stochastic modeling apply equally or more to uh, deterministic modeling. So what that does is that gives you uh, a, a, a very good background in uh, risk analysis and uh, risk assessment, risk management uh, from uh, a holistic uh, background, if you will. I've tried to allude to the fact that this is one of the more challenging aspects of toxicology. Uh, challenging because if for no other reason, we have to invoke models. When we invoke models, there is a degree of uncertainty and there are methods uh, to quantifying that uncertainty. Uh, the bottom line is that as scientists, as engineers, uh, as practitioners in this field, what we do is we do the best we can with available information. Uh, and if you look at uh, the positive aspects of history, I think the successes far outweigh any sort of failures, failures or the inability to predict outcomes to uh, sufficiently mitigate risk uh, you know, versus benefits. This uh, gives you at least uh, uh, some level of, of background, uh, some of the uh, jargon, the terminology associated with risk assessment uh, and risk management. I would invite all students to look at uh, some web pages, websites like the Agency for Toxic Disease uh, Registry, ATSDR, um, and look at some risk assessment documents uh, and see how they're written, how the information is tried to blend in, uh, not on a site-specific basis, but on a general basis. For example, the risk associated with drinking water and lead uh, is uh, one example. Next time what we'll do is we'll start uh, doing uh, a, uh, in this particular case, kind of a case study 
of a couple of environmental contaminants, uh, in this case uh, selenium, my research area, and arsenic, arsenic in drinking water, and we'll look uh, at some aspects of how risk analysis, risk assessment is used to determine how we as a society manage that particular risk. Until that time, we'll see you. Thanks.